Welcome to Sing for Science, the show where musicians and scientists talk about music and science. I'm your host, Matt White. Each week we'll talk about a song by our guest artist and how it connects with our guest scientists' area of expertise. Today's episode is the second in our Best Of series. With the help of Sing for Science social media manager Bailey Constis, we'll be revisiting some of season one's best moments. Today we'll be covering the second half of the season with Living Color, Ali and AJ, Aluna, and Daryl McDaniels from Run DMC. Hi, Bailey Constis. Welcome back to the hot seat. Hey, Matt. It's good to be here. I It was a real joy to revisit some of these episodes, the first of which that we're going to be listening to is um, Living Color, Cult of Personality with uh, fascism scholar Ruth Ben-Ghiat. Now, this song very famously has interspersed within it clips from famous historical political speeches, JFK, uh, FDR, and leads off with Malcolm X. And some of these connections between music and science are, shall we say, cleaner than others, or more direct, and this is one of the more direct ones. Yeah, definitely very direct. And I think it's really interesting how they talk about using figures from the past adds this romanticized feeling to it instead of using clips that were extremely relevant from that period of time. And I think that kind of helped this song connect to more people using historical references to make it more, like he says in this clip, romanticized and more accessible almost. Mm -hmm. I think all the moves they made with this song were just so smart and so thought out and... And there was a moment when he's talking about how this song comes together, how he's saying the thing he's most proud of is that he was able to get a Malcolm X speech on white rock radio across America during the Reagan administration. It just I remember when he said that it gave me goosebumps. Definitely. It was such a powerful moment live when I did that taping. And um, yeah, it kind of like stopped me in my tracks. It doesn't necessarily come across, but... That was how I experienced it when I was interviewing them. So let's take a listen to this clip of Vernon Reed and Corey Glover from Living Color with Ruth Ben-Ghiat, and she is a fascism expert. And we recorded this towards the end of the Trump presidency. And so she was quite busy and in demand because she'd written a book that she was promoting at the time called Strong Men, and she had an intimate understanding of what's known as the fascism playbook. So we talk a lot about that, and obviously history repeats itself, and so she had a lot of wisdom to share. So let's check this clip out. What about getting permission? I mean, Betty Shabazz and Jackie Kennedy were still alive. Did they, did, did they, did you have to get their sign off? So, so this is, inter- so this is a, here's the thing that's, that's, Okay, a little inside baseball. <laughs> um, my first wife went to school with Malak Shabazz, one of one of Betty's daughters. She was a she's a rock fan, and so so it, we have, I have to go back because at first we had the uh, Martin Luther King um, speech, but we couldn't use it because the King Foundation wanted ten thousand dollars. Okay, to use and a, and a piece of the song. Yeah. And we were like, and it was very, we were, I was very bummed out about it. And um, 
And I was walking around uh, kind of dejected in Harlem. And I was walking by one of these tables where these, these brothers are selling cassettes of various speeches of Malcolm X. And he had this one called Speech to the Grassroots. And I bought it and I put it on. And the first thing is, you know, let us talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. And yeah. I was like, that's it. Mm-hmm. And basically wow. what had happened was, Malaksha has interceded with Betty and said, yo, this, this is cool. This is going to mm-hmm. be cool. And one of the things that was, I think I'm most proud of with regards to that song is all across rock radio, all across the country, people had to hear the voice of Malcolm X. Like that for me, and that happened just because of circumstance, but that for me to hear that on white rock stations, and him, Malcolm X's voice, introduced the song is just like, you know, I'm just really proud that we were the ones to to make that, be able to be allowed to make that happen. Mm. And all the rest, and the other speeches are in the public domain, like Kennedy, so we oh. didn't have to clear those. Okay. Another thing that I've been thinking about recently, because in the context of our bungled response to the pandemic, it's it's becoming more widely accepted how destructive a presidency the Reagan administration was insofar as Reagan was the first to say government's the problem, not the solution, and how he courted and empowered the mm-hmm. anti-science religious right. So um, you wrote that song in in the mid late eighties. So that mm-hmm. was right during his, his reign. Was it like ever seen as social commentary? Oh, sure. But, you, you know, it's so funny because like um, when, when I was writing the lyrics, I I made a v- definitive choice to, to use Mussolini instead of Adolf Hitler mm-hmm. because I wanted to have a representative of fascism. But Hitler, there was another thing going on with, with Hitler that I didn't want. I didn't want his name in the tune. I just didn't want it. And in a weird way, having Hitler, um, having Mussolini and Gandhi and these characters from the previous era, because it felt like putting Reagan in was just too on the nose and too in the current moment. There was something, there was also a, a, nost- a, rom- a romance around having the voice of, you know, John F. Kennedy mm-hmm. and FDR in the song that I, I felt wouldn't have been there in making reference to Reagan. I didn't want to give Reagan any shine anyway. No. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Well, you, you did a good thing featuring, because Mussolini actually, he gets overshadowed by Hitler. And one of the things I learned in doing research for this book is that Hitler hugely learned from Mussolini and copied him. Mm-hmm. And instead of people think it's often the other way around, but anything to do with marketing like being a media celebrity and marketing, knowing to speak to the people, all of that, like Mussolini was the first one. And and he also, which is relevant for uh, us today around the world, he was prime minister of a democracy for three years before he became dictator. And he slowly destroyed the democracy Mm -hmm. um, in ways that people do today. Like how did he destroy it? Well, he had a propaganda barrage. He had been a journalist. He started discrediting democratic institutions. He joked about being a dictator, but mm. you know, he was the first one and nobody no one understood what he was doing. Like mm-hmm. no one had any clue and they thought and then people didn't take him seriously. People thought he was a clown. The same things that have happened over and over, but he was the first. 
and there had already been a lot of violence. So he used all of the kind of toolkit that dictators used. He was kind of setting it up in those three years okay. um, before he became dictator. So I think it's important to appreciate, you know, his how, how many people learned from him. So I, was, I agree, he's a better than Hitler, who did everything immediately. Okay. And so it's not as much a lesson for the way things happen today. And what are some of the vile acts that Mussolini is known for having perpetrated? Well, after World, you know, the, I mean, he he and Hitler rose after World War One, and so there was so much violence that that he basically just continued the violence that had been in World War One and turned it onto the left and onto Catholics, and so there was all this kind of paramilitary violence, uh, the squadras, and so he posed as. He, he made all this chaos and, and violence, and then he posed as the law and order. This is what right-wing authoritarians always do, right? They create a crisis, and then they pose themselves a solution. Mm. And then later, he, he perpetrated a genocide in Libya. And one of the things that's very relevant is most of his victims were people of color from colonies in Africa, mm. um, from North Africa to Ethiopia, Eritrea, Somalia. And and he didn't go after the Jews for like 16 years. And so he got a pass because people can't, you know, didn't, it's like the black lives don't matter thing. And so even to this day, there's a real misunderstanding of the amount of violence that he caused because he, he attacked fewer white people in Europe than Hitler did. Okay. Mm. I could use an, an education from you. Uh, I mean, so there's fascism, there's totalitarianism, there's authoritarianism, there's despotism, there's autocracy, there's dictatorships. Is there a simple way you could kind of break this down for me and, and define them or, or talk about how, how some of them are different and which, which ones can coexist? I mean, I would take the whole show, but just um, <laughs> basically, basically, I see fascism as a subset of kind of authoritarianism, which is a, a, a general term that um, can include totalitarianism. It include it can include dictatorship. Mm -hmm. Today, we don't have as many one-party states outside of North Korea and China. Mm -hmm. But when the executive power crushes all the others and gets rid of opposition media and, and, and puts people in prison and masses and uses violence, that's kind of authoritarianism. So I, in my book, I use that term mm -hmm. to refer to everybody from Mussolini up to today. And I just show how it changes because today it just works differently, which mm -hmm. makes sense. But the cult of personality song is so amazing because it, it just summarizes so many dynamics that are common to these regimes. It's really very brilliant. And life is funny because I remember I was just finishing my PhD and it was on Italian fascism. And a friend told me, you know, this song came out and you should listen to it. Hmm. <laughs> and I was like, wow, this song fits what I've been studying through books. And uh, so I, I, I always have referred back to the song. And then when I was writing um, this book, Strongmen, I, I listened to it sometimes. Uh, so it's very funny that then Matt contacted me and here we are That's today. So cool. That's great. You know, it was like uh, the, the, the one line, uh, I tell you one and one makes three. That was <sighs> directly from 1984 by George Orwell, because that was one of the things that they did to Winston Smith. 
was the character mm-hmm. Winston Smith. He said, like, how many fingers am I holding up? And he would say what it was and they would beat him. And they said, how many? And he would say it again. And they're beating him. And then he realizes that they want him to say another number than the number that's obvious. Mm. And then he finally says three and they stop beating him. And And it's kind of like, that's sort of the process. That's part of the process. Like, I, get, I mean, it's just, I tell you one and one makes three, and the correlation is you be- and you believe it. Boom. Um, next up is the Ali and AJ attack of panic episode on the topic of anxiety with NYU neuroscientist Dr. Joseph Ledoux. Now, this is actually the first episode we ever recorded. This was February of 2020, and it's the first one I did, and it was actually in person in a studio. Oh, Wow. Yeah, in Brooklyn. And I remember when we were posing for pictures afterwards, we we're all making jokes about whether or not we should be close to one another because this, it was at this time that I think it was starting to hit the fan in Italy. And I mean, it's amazing that there was any question that it would, whether or not it would come to the States in the same way, which of course it did. And also it's the one that kind of informed how we format the show with these cold opens from the the conversation because we opened the show with this anecdote where if a, if a bear were chasing us, do we feel fear because there's a bear chasing us or do we feel fear because we're actually running from the bear? In other words, do we have sort of kind of this automatic reaction, almost involuntary, where we start running and then the brain responds to that, that nervous system response? And I forget the answer. <laughs> <laughs> I actually do too. <laughs> um, I think it's the latter. Yes, because I think he was talking about how breath is very connected to how our emotional response ends up being. Yeah. So if we are breathing heavier, then we're going to feel more anxious. And it kind of ties into his mindfulness explanation as well. Personally, this episode was extremely helpful if not a little bit triggering (laughs) with all the talk about false memories. And I think Mm, that was very interesting to hear how our brains process traumatic events. And sometimes we are unable to put together a real true memory of what happened. Yeah. It was so cool because um, Allie and AJ, they're musicians, they're sisters, but they were raised as child stars or you know oh yeah i don't know if they were i remember watching them on disney channel (laughs) okay so they were disney stars right okay Mm -hmm. um so i'm sure that does a real number on a kid oh my (laughs) god yeah i can't even imagine so they had no shortage of things to talk about you know and they were very generous with their personal experiences and personal relationship to anxiety and depression so yeah so with that let's check out this clip Ali and AJ and Dr. Joseph Ledoux. I, I don't know if, if, if as people, I think we have the ability to shut out trauma, right? So if that was a traumatic moment in my life, I'm sure my brain has kind of wanted to like recalibrate. Well, there's me. actually, you know, a good scientific explanation for why you might not remember stuff or why you might even remember it stronger, depending mm. on uh, your particular makeup. And that is that uh, in a stressful situation, things, you know, hormones like cortisol are released. And these are actually very toxic at high levels. 
So if you're very stressed out and cortisol is just flowing like crazy into your brain, then um, it can go to the part of the brain that's heavily involved in memory, which is called the hippocampus, and have a toxic effect there. It can shut it down so that your ability to store that information that's happening wow. to you at the moment is impaired. Mm. Now, there's probably some adaptive value to that, you know, that you you uh, uh, don't have to carry it all with you the rest of your life. Right, like a survival instinct. Almost. Yeah, but on the other hand, you know, it's important to benefit from the past, and so you do want to remember yeah. what mm -hmm. happened to you. Uh, and I guess the other thing to point out is that there are different kinds of memories that are formed in a situation like that. So the hippocampus is involved in forming a cognitive memory so that you can remember what you were doing, who you were with, what it was all about. But other parts of the brain are storing information implicitly or unconsciously, like the part of the brain that I work on called the amygdala is storing information about the threat and the danger and the situation you're in and um, uh, forming associations with all of the things that are happening. So when you encounter those cues later in life, they can go into your brain, remind you of what you were doing, who you were with and so forth through the hippocampus, mm -hmm. but through your amygdala cause you to begin to, your heart to race, your palms to sweat, you feel out of breath and mm -hmm. so forth. And those are cues that you associate with a panic attack from having had one. And because, you know, even if it's not that big a, uh, a threatening situation, if you're not that bad, those cues can remind your, your amygdala that that was associated with it. And so you start mm -hmm. to have the symptoms and they just sort of rev up and can oh, that's rev up into a panic attack. That's interesting. So, but during the, during the formation of that memory, if the cortisol is very high, then you not you won't necessarily remember all of the details, mm -hmm. but it, it's a kind of double-edged sword because the, before you lose that capacity, your hippocampus is forming memories even stronger because of the cortisol. Mm -hmm. So, but then at some point you may lose it. Then later, because you've formed an incomplete memory, you might go to therapy and try to you know Explain. retrieve all this stuff, right. and you don't have the information. You have bits and pieces, and you try to put it together. And that's where the possibility of false memory comes from, which is that you have bits and pieces and you put it together into a narrative that makes sense, but may not be accurate in terms of what happened. All memory is, wow. you know, all that's memory is me. by nature uh, a reconstruction. Mm -hmm. Therefore, it's not false a carbon memory. copy. Um, every memory is a false memory in that hmm. sense. Usually mm -hmm. it's not so false, right, so right. it's okay. But it's always a kind of, you know, putting back together on the basis of incomplete information. It's so fascinating. Is it that it's it's just it's partially recording it, or you only have partial access to it? Well, that's a good question, yeah. and uh, scientifically, that's a really hard question to parse uh -huh. um, because all you know is that the memory is not as good as it was, and to say it's because it wasn't stored properly, or that you can't it was stored properly properly, but you can't pull it out, you can't retrieve it, is just very difficult to know. Yeah. I think for me, it's it's enlightening because I've never really spoken to someone like you about this. I mean, yes, you can continue to take medication, right? Anti-anxiety medication and see a psychologist and, and continue to kind of review the typical monthly uh, updates so right. that you continue <clears throat> to get medication, right? Mm -hmm. But I also feel like there's... I, I'm a little scared that being on something long term is is not healthy. Unfortunately, and, we, and don't know, you know, we don't know. We don't know. Yes, and that's yeah. kind of what's scary. And it's yeah. interesting. I've had this conversation with friends where they're like, how do you feel continuing to stay on this? Right. 
And I'm like, well, I don't know. It hasn't done me any harm yet. But is mm-hmm. are there other ways to treat anxiety right. outside of antidepressants that might be a lot healthier long term? Right. So, I mean, my perspective is that, you know, part of the problem is that all of the major treatment approaches today or the most popular ones, for example, cognitive behavioral therapy mm-hmm. and drug therapy are both outcomes of behaviorism in psychology. In other words, behaviorism got rid of the mind. It said, all we need to understand is stimuli and responses. And for decades- Can we talk about what stimuli and responses are? Sure, so if you want to understand, for example, why a person does X, uh, according to this logic, you would need to know what the stimuli are, what are the environmental components that are making you do that, and what is it that you're doing. And so if you're responding, over-responding to threats, then according to behaviorism, you can explain that as a history of relationship between threats Mm -hmm. and your behavior. Mm -hmm. You don't need anything inside the head. You don't need any conscious experience. You don't need any brain or anything to account for that. So that led to, for example, behavior therapy, which is the first kind of uh, non-Freudian therapy that would use things like uh, the procedure called extinction, so you are exposure. You repeat the stimulus over and over again to weaken the threat potential of it. So if you're afraid of spiders, you make mm-hmm. the person sit there with the spider over and over again. Mm-hmm. Right. So that mm-hmm. that's the origin of exposure therapy, but then cognitive behavior therapy added more cognition to it. But the cognition was all in the service of behavior, and drugs, of course, are all about behavior. You take rats or mice, put them in challenging situations, give them a medication, And if they act less timid, you assume that they're less fearful or anxious. And therefore, when you give it to a person, that person will be less fearful or anxious. Mm -hmm. Now, the things you're describing in terms of medications, I think, are not... Let's just ask the question, how could you possibly change the content of someone's experience with a a chemical? I don't think you can do that. What you can do is turn down the volume. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. So That's a very good way to word it. You go into a restaurant in New York, it's too loud. Yep, Somebody you're says, overwhelmed. turn it down. They turn it down. The song is the same. It's just not as irritating. It's background mm-hmm. noise instead of like right. front and center. Right. And that's what the medications are doing. Yeah. But mm-hmm. So they're not address, They're not going into a fear or anxiety center. They're just adjusting things so that consciously you can tolerate it. It's not it eliminating it from your life. Which, right. I mean, if you're an yeah. anxious person, you're going to be anxious the rest of your life. Totally. And you can learn how to cope with it. Yes. Totally. But the, you, if a drug is sold as an anti-anxiety drug, and it's not changing anxiety itself per se, but turning down the volume, then it's, it's being missold. Mm. And the companies have stopped funding med, uh, efforts to develop new medications because they can't find anything that works. That Since the 60s, you've got huh. yeah. reuptake inhibitors and benzodiazepines. Mm. So what do you find? You find new reuptake inhibitors and new benzodiazepines because all of the tests are developed because they are effective with those drugs. Mm-hmm. So all you do is you find more of those. So they say, well, we're not finding anything, so we're getting out of the business. But really, they shouldn't be getting out of the business because the drugs help. They're just not anti-anxiety, they're They're anti-symptom, behavioral and physiological symptom medications. 
That sounds less sexy, but it's more accurate. Mm. And I think patients would be more appreciative if they got accurate information. I'll tell you what is sexy, though, is ketamine and psilocybin. Isn't that where (laughs) things are headed? Well, yeah, I mean, there's a movement in that direction. (laughs) I've read that, too. For panic? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the other other direction that, and I'll get back to that, but the other direction, of course, is mindfulness and your ability. That is directly addressing your conscious states, right, your experience. And I think we do have to address experience, but perhaps one thing that we need to understand is that we need to first tone down the amygdala with, for example, medication or our exposure. Mm-hmm. Secondly, we then need to begin to change the hippocampus where we have these conscious memories. And at that point, if you do those things in that sequence, the brain is now prepared to do talk therapy, to do med- uh, meditation, and to use the mind to help itself. Mm-hmm. But if if you're while you're trying to meditate, you're being aroused and you're hyper, you know, just like you can't slow down, you can't get your breathing slow enough because you're always thinking about, you know, as soon as you go into a meditative moment, you all all of a sudden start to have these anxious thoughts. Mm-hmm. So you need to calm down the machine yeah. a bit. It's like you need to set up prior to right. it's accessing be set that, up that part of your mind. Right. Okay, so next up is uh, Aluna Francis from Aluna George talking about her song Together with conflict resolution expert Priya Parker. And Priya had written a book called The Art of Gathering. And this was recorded during uh, peak pandemic times. So her time was in great demand because everyone wanted to know, well, how do we gather when we can't occupy the same room together? Um So she had a lot of great things to say. She takes a very scientific approach to evaluating what makes for a quality gathering, quality connection, how to resolve conflict. And she talks with Aluna, uh, because Aluna's song is called Together. The launching pad for that discussion, as you'll hear, is Aluna talking about the conflict that came up with her co-creators of this song. Yeah, I think this pairing was brilliant by the way matt um thank you i would have never thought to speak to a conflict resolution expert when talking about this song but it makes so much sense and i think a lot of the knowledge that she shares with us is so applicable to today a huge part of the conversation is about twitter she went and spoke at twitter and this is before elon uh, yeah, by a couple of years. Yeah. But what's so strange to me is that she's she's pointing to the reason why social media can become so divisive and toxic is that there are no rules to make this a safe space. And you mm-hmm. have to have a safe space in order for people to feel comfortable taking risks. And that means bringing up conflict. Um, as the social media manager, I've done this for like a decade And one of my hugest issues with social media this entire time is how do I make this a safe space for everybody? It's kind of a tall order, isn't it? It's extremely tall, but I think she places the responsibility on the platforms of having rules. And I loved how she even drew comparisons to a real in-person conversation between Aluna and her partner on this track, it's all the same thing. It's not like a different way of speaking or a different way we should behave when we're online. These rules Mm -hmm. still apply. And I think that's what 
social media platforms really need to understand. Yeah. She talks about Twitter not having signed up to have a civic responsibility, but that's what they ended up with on their lap. As the you know old adage says, with great power comes great responsibility. Okay, here's this clip. I finally got Goldlink to, to come over and it was like 2.30 in the morning and he was he wasn't committed to getting involved. He was just like there and like, and I was talking to him about the word bitch and how he uses it and how he thinks it comes across. And, um, I think in, at the time I was in a place where I was trying to, I was trying to understand hip hop lyrics. Um, it was really the height of trap, trap music, which is very misogynistic mm. and very violent. And I, I just been, I just kind of experienced having a song come out where I'd done my part and then, um, some rappers came on afterwards and I wasn't really asked about it and their lyrics were really violent. So I was kind of real up on my, like, why do you talk like that about women? Mm. And he listened to me and he, he tried to explain where he was coming from, but then he's, he was just really inspired to, explore a part of his lyrical content that he's never explored before and it was fascinating to watch it his mind tick over and then he was like I'm getting in this I'm getting in the booth and he walked in there and he talked about his mother and he talked about not calling women bitches and it just flowed out of him this kind of harmony with with, with womanhood and women and I was like wow that that's amazing and it was seriously it was a one take mine was a one take his was a one take and you know at the end of it we were all friends you know so it, it did it did bring us together. You know, when I listened to you talk about this moment and debating whether to kind of speak up and <laughs> and say something or not, the way I would frame it as a as a conflict resolution facilitator is you were you were playing with healthy heat. Right. And I've heard you talk about that. <laughs> and so much of um you know, so much of, of human connection and human relationships is designed to preserve some amount of equilibrium and status quo because there is an element of stasis that keeps the relationship together. And yet we tend to avoid conflict because we don't want things to fall apart, but they end up falling apart anyway because we get stuck in unhealthy peace, which is not saying anything. And so what you leaned into in that moment with Goldlink is naming and and pushing and provoking, in this case, his use of language in a very specific term. And in part, it was a helpful invitation because you didn't make a like a broad generalization about his relationship to women. You started with a very specific intervention, which is, tell me about that word. Yeah. And what I hear when you use that word and how are you using it? And you invited him into, you know, controversy, a generous controversy, controversy that could actually lead to, to a journey for him and to a journey for you. And in my life, so much of my work as a conflict resolution facilitator comes from growing up in a household that was mired in unhealthy peace, like to the point where my parents divorced. When, and when they told me they were getting separated, I was shocked because they never fought. Mm. And so much of my professional work has been trying to both personally and professionally kind of undo the chains and relationships that keep us from speaking because we think they'll fall apart. And I think so much of what you are exploring in your work, and I think also in what I've read about you coming out as an independent artist, 
is that invitation to give voice and to invite some healthy heat, whether it's with your collaborators or in any other context, and not knowing what the outcome might be. Mm-hmm. Certainly, it's my my sort of journey in, in dipping my toe in healthy heat has been on a personal level and seeing what's the worst that can happen. So it, it I feel like seeing what the result is has encouraged me to then move towards healthy heat with the outside world. But it's a big leap for me. So would you say it, typically it, you're more buttoned up? Yes. Publicly and in general, as my sort of face as a musician, I'm buttoned up pretty mm-hmm. much. But if you get me comfortable and you show me that you have a open forum personality I will go I will talk about the ends of the earth um there is there's very few areas that I won't talk about and I have had really crazy conversations with people about all kinds of subjects very controversial ones I can hold my own in in those conversations but it's interesting that in groups especially where the platform is not geared towards healthy heat debate i i button all the way up i don't even i'm just i i and i would like to break through that because i think Mm -hmm. that um we call them haters right internet Mm -hmm. people that express themselves in a kind of very simplified negative way i still think that there is positive in their reaction and i've also seen that depending on how you angle yourself you inspire their attention or you don't mm-hmm. so when i when i discussed my um abuse and uh, sexual harassment in the workplace i did not inspire the base level haters to talk to me i inspired people who want to discuss and debate to notice me so that it was interesting to see that that's possible yeah yeah i mean i was just going to say i you know when i watch public moments and they happen on Twitter or TikTok or, you know, choose your favorite newspaper. I try to look at them with the lens of, is this healthy heat or is this unhealthy heat? Is this what I call generative or generous controversy? Does this help us look at something in a new light? Does this argument or does this battle help us not only look at these two people battling it out, but look at our own relationship to what they're battling over? Or is it simply controversy for controversy's sake? When I say generous heat or generative heat and Aluna talking to Goldlink and saying, hey, what's your, you know, why are you using the word bitch? Tell me more about that. Yes, that's a conversation between these two artists. But Mm -hmm. the reason it's generative meaning it can lead to something else, not only in Goldlink evolving, but in all of us, is because they become proxies or vessels for a conversation that we are all trying to figure out in our own worlds. You know, what does language mean? Can it mean something in a different context if you hear it versus I hear it? Who can use certain, you know, certain words and who can't? Is it misogynistic or is it reclaiming? Like all of these words, we don't have to necessarily be part of the argument, in meaning our actual words, to be part of the argument, if you see what I'm saying. Like yeah. their argument is almost in service of all of us trying to figure out where do we stand and how am I in my communities and what is okay to use. Um, one of the things I notice happening 
with a lot of these public conversations is that the intention of an individual who perhaps tries to spark healthy debate eventually and almost inevitably turns to them saying, everyone has been mean to me since I spoke up. They've been <laughs> critical. They've been abusive. Yeah. They've, you know, to the, to the basically the most extreme linguistic behavior on the internet. And I'm always curious about it because being someone who's pretty much terrified to get involved in the first place anyway, I imagine if I was going to, that I would prepare myself to take all of that stuff in the right way. But what do you, what do you think about that? Like, do you think that all of that stuff is part and parcel of the healthy heat or is that, do you think a symptom, symptom of it when it's uh, unhealthy heat? That's such a good question. I don't think it has to be part and parcel of healthy heat. And I think we have things like massive trolling and Twitter, you know, lynch mobs. And, you know, that to me is unhealthy heat. And I think part of the reason we are in that in that situation is because the tools that we are using for public debate were not created for public debate. Twitter was created it's originally to see if, you know, some, a group of friends would be interested in someone else reporting on them going to the bathroom or you know whatever they're doing over the course of the day. It has evolved into this very interesting tool. Like eBay originally, at least the myth was, you know, to help his wife sell her, uh, like her Pez collection. And then it <laughs> developed in this very different thing. And with Twitter, you know, I, I spoke there before all of this uh, and, and they tweet a lot of their speakers. So I'm not speaking out of turn here. And they brought me in in part because they're interested in becoming the world's dinner party, like where, where public conversations happen, we want to be that. And, and one of the things I said to them was, you can't be that until you create the healthy ground rules that allow for that. Right. And right now there's, there's no healthy ground rules. And so it, there are now codes that have been generated by users, like hashtags was created by a user, but part of healthy heat allows for creating the ground rules that create enough safety for you to take risk. And right now there's no safety on Twitter right. or Facebook for that matter. But when you spoke with Twitter about it and suggest that they have uh, a tighter framework, did they bristle at that? Did they, what was the response? No. And you know, I'll just be very clear here. I went in as a speaker, not as a consultant. And so right. they didn't bristle at all. I mean, and at some level who I was speaking with within the company were the designers. And so I think most employees within Twitter join in part for these aspirational goals and reasons and in part to buttress public discourse. Mm -hmm. But I think at some level, you know, it's evolved over the last 10, 12, 15 years. They like many tech companies when your purpose evolves, but the underlying technology has been built generation after generation on a different purpose, and then you have community members who have been part of this evolution for 10 or 15 years, it's not clear who has the power to actually just switch the light off or, or, or you know, close, close certain rooms. I mean, it's a very complicated situation because users, and in my terminology, I'd say guests, have started to and this is a successful job of a gathering, feel like they own this thing. And so it's actually very complicated to also just shut down certain parts of it. And so anyway, long story short, they were thinking maybe they could start doing conversations that, you know, that are promoted within a hashtag or how, you know, how tightly or how 
loosely do you change an algorithm? It's complicated. It's very complicated. And Mm -hmm. they have a civic responsibility that they didn't originally sign up for. And they are now trying to figure out. Okay. Last up. Now this episode is super cool. And, uh, it's a little outside perhaps the normal bailiwick for sing for science content because we had a folklorist and arguably most anyone in an academic discipline is approaching their area of study scientifically so i make no apologies for including someone from the liberal arts on a a show about science um (laughs) definitely this episode is very very important to me because dmc was my first hero in music i was super young when raising hell came out and i am not too proud to volunteer to our listeners that i wept when he emailed me oh Um, (laughs) (laughs) because he just means so much to me and uh this song meant so much to me i chose this song because this is my favorite run dmc song when i was probably about eight and he's such an enthusiastic guest so interested in what Jennifer, the professor, had to say. And back then and to this day, people mock early hip hop because it was so simplistic. But he talks about how they, you know, quite literally were just borrowing from nursery rhymes. And it wasn't just Run DMC. There are other early hip hop pioneers who he cites that were doing the same thing. Okay, so here this one is Daryl McDaniels talking about the Run DMC classic Peter Piper with nursery rhyme and folklore expert Jennifer Shacker. So when you guys wrote it, was mm-hmm. it all just drawing from your own experience and memory, or did you have to be like, oh, we got to consult this source because I'm... I, I. Well, no, no. The, the motivation behind Peter Piper is really funny. UTFO did this song. UTFO, who did the Roxanne, Roxanne song. Um, Kango wrote this song called um, Fairy Tale Love. So Run wrote it because UTFO went from doing hip hop to singing R&B slow jams. So Run, he heard Fairy Tale Love and he was like, what are these guys doing? So it just gave him the idea to say, yo, let's do a hip hop song and, and use nursery rhymes. And, you know, at the time, Run DMC was rhyming about everything. We were just waking up in the morning going, hey, let's make a rock song. You know, we made Rockbox, we made King of Rock. We was going to make, mm-hmm. we was going to sample Walk This Way. But Rick Rubin said, no, do the record over the way the band originally did it. So we were just doing all this spontaneous stuff. So Run was like, yo, let's do a song and um, let's do a hard, hard beat and, and talk about nursery rhymes, <laughs> you know, to, to, to go at Kangol in them. And that was really the motivation behind it. Oh, wow. You know, I I read somewhere that music critics of the time were, you know, who were critical of rap music, were likening it to nursery rhymes, just kind of dismissing it as nursery rhymes. Were you aware of that? It was, yeah, it was simple. (laughs) It was was so simple back then. And it was like, um, you know, and that being said, it's funny that we were influenced by, you know, Jack and Jill went up the hill, you know, fetch a pail of water, all of that. The, if you listen to the, especially if you listen to hip hop before it was recorded, I'm talking about before Rapper's Delight, we stole every nursery rhyme, every fable, every roses are red, violets are blue, 
uh, um, Little Jack Horner said, we stole, we were, it, it's amazing that it, it, we didn't cons consider it stealing, though. We was imitating, we was emulating, we was recreating all of those stories that we heard as kids, but we was putting it in um, a scenario that could be relatable to what was going on in the park, in the basements, in the homes, and in the streets of the towns we live in. But it's funny, no, it was nursery rhymes. Like if you listen to early hip hop, I'm talking about before Rappers Delight. And then when Rappers Delight came out, of the majority of those songs from Curtis Blow to Jimmy Spicer, we said, you know, Jack and Jill went up the hill and Little Jack Horner. We used nursery rhymes to create our own genre. Mm. So the same way we looked up to James Brown and um, um, Rush, you know, we sampled mm -hmm. Rush's Tom Sawyer. We sampled Led Zeppelin's When the Levy Breaks. The same way we looked up to these people as artists is the same way we looked up and respected the creators of those nursery rhymes. They gave us our inspiration. Mm. Jennifer, where, where were you in, in your studies when this record came out or when you first heard this song? I was an undergrad so I wasn't in folklore yet. And I'm still marveling at the fact that my career brought me to this <laughs> podcast. This right, is no, awesome. It's amazing. It's amazing. It's I'm so happy to be here because I was, I was a real fan. And this has been so interesting to hear like Daryl's mm -hmm. account of this because I think uh, it just shows like how much you understood then and understand now, like the way folklore works, right? This sort of relationship yes. between things that are kind of frozen in one form, whether it's a record or a mm. book, which our culture tends to see as like the real thing, right? And then the sort of creative repurposing of this whole shared right. repertoire of material, which is what rap does. But it's also, of course, what children do, right? Children don't care about mm. like, you know, the real thing or, you know, the thing that's been given right. that sort of seal of approval by commercial culture. They'll repurpose commercial jingles, they'll repurpose nursery rhymes, they'll repurpose just about any material that comes their way creatively for their own purposes. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, that didn't so, quite answer yeah. your question. But yeah, I was I was pretty young, not not as young as Matt, but it's been really fascinating to hear, to hear the way you're talking about this, Daryl, because I think it corresponds so well with the way folklorists think about that relationship between, well, in my case, like mm -hmm. print culture and mm -hmm. oral culture. The folklore stories come, it's passed down generationally, right? Yeah. Although, you know, it's really funny because this category that our culture calls nursery rhyme actually encompasses mm -hmm. a whole bunch of stuff. So some of it is oral traditional and has been, you know, passed along, but also at various points in time put into collections. So put into print, sometimes illustrated, sometimes appearing with sheet music because some nursery rhymes are associated with melodies. But that category of nursery rhyme also includes things that do have um, definite literary sources. Like, so there are some oh. specific collections of verse for children that nursery rhymes we know well right now come from. And then there are things like drinking songs that ended up as nursery rhymes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then they're like, you know, political sort of jingles that we're passing around. There are things that come from broadside ballads. So, like 17th and 18th century popular print documents of ballads with multiple stanzas where just one stanza gets isolated and ends up in nursery rhyme collections. So nursery rhymes are really kind of fluid, baggy kind of category. It's not, it's not like we can just mm. define 
A nursery rhyme is basically whatever the culture of our time says it is. It's a really mm. flexible right. category. Yep. Okay. What can you tell us about any of the characters that uh, appear in Daryl's song? Oh my gosh, there are so many, right? The thing I love, I'll just say to begin with before I get into some of the specific characters, is that I think the song taps so well into this notion of a repertoire, right? And Daryl was already talking about how rap artists drew on a repertoire of like characters and rhythms and mm -hmm. rhyme schemes and so on. But the repertoire in this particular song includes things that we might readily call nursery rhyme, but also also some like fairy tale characters. There's one um, you know popular advertising jingle that's in there, Tricks are for Kids. There's some works of fantasy. So we've got like an Alice in Wonderland reference. Like it's a bunch of different things, but mm -hmm. all of those are part of a, a repertoire that kids would have and that young adults at the time would also have. So like the, I think the key line in the song is like, you all know how the story goes, right? You all know. Mm -hmm. So we can just reference these in passing yep. and you've got yeah, all yeah. these, you can fill it in, fill you in the blanks. You know how the story goes. <laughs> right. And so that notion that you can have this sort of shorthand and it indexes this familiar repertoire, I think is really, really interesting. Um, right. Who should we talk right. about? Well, what about Peter Piper? Yeah, Peter Piper. So Peter Piper obviously is a tongue twister. And Peter Piper makes appearances in collections that are labeled as nursery rhyme. And I should say, first of all, that even that term nursery rhyme, it has a long history, but not not an incredibly long history. It goes back to the beginning of the 1800s. So before oh, really? that, there are other books that would have what we now would call nursery rhymes, but they tended to just call them songs or ditties or, you know, just children's melodies. Mm -hmm. Um, ditty. Yeah, just a little ditty. Just a little ditty. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Jack and Diane. Yeah, yeah. Peter Piper, as a tongue twister, makes appearances in other kinds of books, like elocution manuals, right, to teach people how to speak clearly. And I think, you know, something like Peter Piper is interesting because it kind of points to the fact that so many nursery rhymes are kind of about the delight of saying it, right? They're not really about the storyline, but they're so fun to say or challenging. So that's, right. I mean, Peter Piper is the perfect yep. sort of character to be in the title because this is all about verbal virtuosity. Like, this is what we can do. This is what we can do with language. And it's amazing. Yeah, right. exactly. Amazing wordplay. Another thing is, were these stories, I mean, it's funny that you said, um, you know, on um, bar songs, you know, <laughs> people get drunk, just get happy and make stuff up. But, but what was intriguing to me is, the, the mention of the character, but then to see how they were illustrated, it kind of makes you think that they were based mm. on real people. Yeah. You know, was the writer or the creative and inspired by something they saw? You know what I'm saying? So it was always like we we tried to put J Jason Mizell's Jason Mizell, but we tried to put the character Jam Master J into folklore eternity like yeah. you know what i'm saying yeah, like yeah, when you yeah. when you th when you think of all of these all the characters in from little miss muffet to everybody we wanted as you go down the line and then you get to this part of it just a guy it's not only who is jay but what is this jay what is like what does jam master me because peter piper the names were so captivating and we always thought that, you know, nursery rhymes was based on real people. Like we said the same way we created a Jam Master J, somebody had to base Jack and Jill on two people that they would see. Oh, I, when I was a little kid, I always watched this young girl and this young boy uh -huh. go get water for the parents. You know what I'm saying? 
It seems like it always comes from a real aspect of life. That was the whole thing that captivated us about these nursery rhymes. These people seem real to us. I mean, there have been attempts to try to trace nursery rhymes to some specific historic moment. And most of those kind of fall short. Mm -hmm. They don't actually hold up. Mm -hmm. The only one I know of where those who have researched its background think it probably related to a specific historical event is Little Jack Horner. Really? Um, so do you, you know that one? Yeah, sat in the corner. corner. Yeah, you got it, eating a Christmas pie. He put in his thumb and pulled out a plum and said, what a good boy am I? Well, there was a guy named Thomas Horner who was representing some land that was that was owned by the church. And he was sent, the story goes, he was sent to Henry VIII with a pie that had the deed to the land oh, wow. inside the pie. What? <laughs> so, so some people think that Little Jack Horner may be referring to this kind of what became a kind of legendary event of sort of hiding the deed to this land in a pie and delivering it to the king. Right. You know, who knows? Like, there's no way to prove that. And in a way, it almost doesn't matter. You know, the very fact, yeah, right. Why do we keep telling this? Not because we're going, oh, yes, we really want to remember this historic event when Henry VIII had a pie with a deed inside it. Like, that doesn't really do much for us now. But I think, you know, I mean, I had a really vivid vision as a kid of that nursery rhyme and a kid Mm -hmm. sticking their fingers straight into a pie. And that just seemed like so transgressive, right? right? Like Mm -hmm. it's everything you're not supposed to do as a kid. You don't stick your thumb (laughs) directly into Mm -hmm. a pie. So the idea that like lots of nursery rhymes actually just have these kinds of, they might be delightful to say, delightful to recite, but sometimes their content also kind of breaks social rules in ways that we really like to say because we feel kind of naughty saying them as kids. Mm. So that might be an example, yeah. Sing for Science is co-produced by TalkHouse and made possible in part by a grant from Science Sandbox, an initiative of the Simons Foundation. Stay tuned for other shows in our Best Of series and be sure to check out our other episodes. For more information, please visit singforscience.org and follow us on social media at Sing for Science. Thanks for listening. <laughs>